You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. On this week's show, we're going to be chatting with two women who look after important art collections. Later in the show, Dr. Joan Stack, the Curator of Art Collections at the State Historical Society of Missouri, will be joining me to talk about the imminent grand opening of their new home on Elm Street and what that move means for their extensive art collections. But first, it is truly a pleasure Mm -hmm. to welcome Kelsey Hammond, the new Executive Director of the Columbia Art League, to Speaking of the Arts. Now, I first met Kelsey about 12 years ago when I was the brand new executive director of the Columbia Art League and she was my counterpart at the University of Missouri's craft studio. As I moved Cal into its new home at the Missouri Theatre, Kelsey was moving the craft studio into its new home at Memorial Union. And so having hung up my Columbia Art League cape and tiara almost two years ago, I am ridiculously (laughs) happy that it is Kelsey who will be donning them as Cal goes forward. Welcome to the show, Kelsey. Thank you so much. Yes, I mean, they are a big cape and beautiful crown to try to to fit into, but... I'm going to do my best. Somewhere there is a tiara that uh, my husband I added a LED it. lights to. And oh. it, we used to get passed between Dr. <laughs> Anne Mayer and I and anyone else who had a birthday. You had to wear the, the tiara with the lights okay, well, on we'll it. We'll definitely keep that tradition alive if I can yeah. find it. You have to if stick not, we'll the battery pack one. down in your knicker elastic. But... <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll wear the extra, the extra good ones that extra day. Extra strong, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, So you started at the Columbia Art League on July the 8th, not yet one month ago. How would you describe your first three and a half weeks? I mean, a whirlwind, really. It's sort of like keeping track of everything, still asking tons of questions, knowing there are lots of good people in the community that I can ask for help from. So, But it's been really, really wonderful. And meeting the artists who are coming in and... I don't know, hearing stories and kind of just all the things that I've learned, like yoga classes that used to happen there and, you know, being a part of KOPN and like all of these things that the the Columbia Art League really is this institution that has been here for so long. So just getting to be a part of that history is awesome. I'm really glad that you say that because the moment that solidified my passion for the art league was around the history and it was one rainy Saturday afternoon and I didn't have a volunteer and I was new director and at that time all the history boxes were still at the art league and I found a couple still there are a couple but I I, they're all now at the State Historical Society but I started to go through them I found all these binders that were beautifully put together and there were photographs from the 1960s onwards and there were all of these press cuttings and everything was a little bit charred around the edges because of the fire that happened in yes. 1981 and so this box of treasures and this box of history and to realize all the people that had gone before me yes. and all the people that had got us to this place and time <laughs> precisely i've got goosebumps i know me too it's <laughs> happening it's happening i know and that box is just a wonder to look through and so yeah. it is at the state historical society the big box of yeah, i can't uh, wait treasures. to go especially when they open and it's yeah. going to be amazing so i need to ask my next guest where yes, all of right, that exactly, stuff is because exactly. it, it is incredible yeah i used to describe the art league like it was doctor who's tardis and from the outside <laughs> it looks like a little art gallery but inside it expands to be this huge huge amount to a lot of people yes. and I'm wondering how your idea of Cal has changed 
from seeing it from the outside and now sitting in the driver's seat? Yeah, that's a great question because I think that my idea, even through the interview process and just sort of, you know, doing some research and kind of preparing to be like, I want to be the next person. It was sort of like a magic box that I opened, you know, so I sort of lifted one flap and learned something and another flap and another and another. And it was sort of this amazing fortune teller, basically. Um, and so now I'm, I realize how much we're involved in the community outside of Cal. So yes, we sit in a, in a tiny office, but there are so many things that are happening. So the community exhibit program, so we're in different banks, but also in different businesses, like exhibiting the artworks from the people who are members of the Columbia Art League, understanding that you don't have to be a member of the Columbia Art League to also exhibit your work there or be involved in any way. Um, obviously, Art in the Park is something that I think a lot of people know about, but I didn't know about the mentorship program where uh, seasoned artists are working with emerging artists to sort of teach them what they've learned and, you know, not just techniques, but also how to sort of manage your own business as an artist. So that's been really interesting to get to know. You know, we have a thriving art program, which I think a lot of people know about, but I kind of didn't realize the depth that was there. So I'm so excited to talk to more people about that and, you know, start using social media really robustly so people know what's going on. And I just want people to get more and more involved. It is, as we were talking before we came on air, it's in a slightly slightly tough location because we yeah. aren't around other shops. And so because we have all of this protective UV film on the windows to keep the art safe, to keep the art safe right. when you walk past, you, your eye isn't automatically drawn in by the colors because it's slightly muted. And plus right. also you haven't been looking at the other shops you've been walking right, past. Right, right, correct. Yeah. Or there aren't <laughs> sort of people milling about usually in the middle of the day down there where there might be right. like if Spark uses across from you or something. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So th yeah, that's a little bit of a challenge, I think. But I keep saying maybe we should get an open site. You know, just something, a little simple thing, but I really, my sort of idea and goal for this next couple of months as I'm getting introduced to people and learning more things and all of that is to think about the Columbia Art League as being like radically approachable. I just want people to come in. If you have not come in before, come in come talk to me. I want to meet you. I want to shake your hand. Maybe we'll hug consensually at the end. I don't know. I mean, you know, let's just like get to know each other. That's how I very much feel like radically getting to know people. You know? So, so that's where we are. So maybe we'll, yeah, we'll put up an open sign so people actually know if we're in there. I can knock on the yeah, window. Yeah. In the summer, you can sometimes open the door, but yeah, in the winter, yeah. it is cold it is if you open cold. that yeah, door. It for whistles sure. down 9th Street. <laughs> for sure. So to me, it does feel like you have the perfect background to run Cal. I, you have my approval. <laughs> Thank you. I, it's, it's actually all I need. So. <laughs> <laughs> you have degrees in art history and fine art, and you've worked with artists. And in addition to that, you have also run an arts nonprofit and you own your own business, which we'll come back to in a minute. Sure. So you have the advantage of being able to see the Art League from all these different angles. Yes. So which part of your brain do you think will see the most action as executive director? I mean, for me, it is, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I feel super integrated with it because I really think of myself as an artist as being also a business owner because I am my own business in that way. But then I have the teacher background too, where I really want to help people get better at what they're doing. So whether that is marketing yourself or if it's talking about what you do or, you know, just getting your process of framing better, that kind of thing. So that side of the business part for an artist, definitely understand and want to help. But, and I can, I feel like I can talk to artists. I know what it's like. I've been there, but then also really being able to talk to the community about why art is important and how they can help fund what we do so that we can keep the arts programming really robust with you know, zero to 110, you know, like that kind of age range of people, what we're doing is really filling this 
huge age range of, of programming, you know, for all sorts of different people. So I don't know. So I think that business background, the art background, it is kind of really synthesized in this job. I don't right. know if you feel the same, but... Yeah, and I didn't have the art background. I had the marketing kind of sure. business background, sure. but not the not the art background. So that was something but that we've I had to you learn. In now. <laughs> My the one Working piece with art. <laughs> the one piece of art I ever created was at the Columbia Art League, mm, and it go. was a, a glitter chicken. <laughs> I'm gonna need to see this glitter chicken. It is pretty good. I, be, I believe it's probably really good. Awesome. So now am- I'm gonna call you glitter chicken. You realize? <laughs> we- okay. We had an amazing glitter artist in town for a while. <laughs> That's and, awesome. And she did classes. And so she said, bring along an image that you want to create a glitter sure. painting with. And so I brought along a picture of my chicken. And she said, I was thinking of something a little simpler, like an apple. <laughs> but no, the glitter chicken came to life. It's alive. It's, it's fantastic. It. So you already have a lot going on. You have an art business, mm-hmm. Monkey Madness Designs. Mm-hmm. You are a photographer. You're one of the 8th Street Makers Collective. Mm-hmm. You teach marketing classes on social media literacy and photographing your art. And you and your husband own Yellow Dog Bookshop on 9th Street. So why did you feel like you needed to make yourself <laughs> even busier? I mean, I think that when I when I came here to Columbia from San Francisco Bay Area um, and I got the craft studio job, it was I sort of went, oh, I'm 26 and I have my dream job. I can't believe it. And it sort of was the it really was the best time, you know, working with students and working with the community and all of these things and getting to, you know, I learned how to mix glazes and I did all this fun stuff. And then I was kind of out of that for a little bit working at this awesome business, but outside of Columbia. And I really felt like I needed to get back into this community because that's really where I am is I'm really community driven. I want people to be interacting with art and in a space and I just feel so excited about it so for me it's more is better in a way because I really do sort of synthesize all of those things together I keep using that word but I really do feel like I don't know being in the community and feeling like you're rooted here makes you feel more at home you know it makes you want to put in more it makes you want to volunteer more and be a part of something so that kind of feeling makes me feel like I'm home and that's what I was searching for, really, because coming here, and you probably can relate um, from so far away, it's, I don't know, you, you feel a little alienated and not sure how to get in. Um, and now I really feel like this is where we are. And I feel so good at raising my kids here. And, you know, they're at Locust and Jeff. And it just feels like we're all sort of in this downtown feeling. I don't know. More is more. More is better. <laughs> I, I really just don't. It's just part of me. I, I sort of live and breathe, breathe the work. And I feel like that's... Um, I don't really know what to do if I'm idle. Mm. Probably get well, you won't be. You won't be I idle. Know. I'm. I feel good about that. <laughs> I'm ready. I always felt like like running cows, like having a child. Yes. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now you have three. I know exactly. <laughs> sort of like absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yellow dog will be like, "Hi, do you remember me?" <laughs> yes. Yeah. The abandoned child. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I know you come from a family of really go-getting women. I Tell do. us about your grandmother, Dorothy Varian. So Dorothy Varian um, was one of the first women mountain climbers, um, actually, in the Calif- in California. So she grew up in Utah. You maybe know all this stuff, but she grew up in Utah and played football with her brothers. She rode a horse to give her father lunch every day when he was like, he was a logger. And then, you know, whatever. So she went to Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, was the first in the first class of women to graduate with an economics degree in 1928. She was a short order cook. (laughs) She worked as a journalist there. And then um, sort of later in her life, she met my grandfather, who was an inventor and a scientist. And so they 
formed Varian Associates, which was one of the first main Silicon Valley families and like businesses. So the Hewlett's and the Packards and the Varians all work together. You're like Silicon Valley royalty. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I don't feel that, but <laughs> that is actually kind of true. So, but she was an amazing woman. She was like the the vice president of Varian Associates and eventually she, you know, she would host all the, the Silicon ladies at their house, you know, and do the tea and things. But then she was also in the boardroom with all of the men making decisions and keeping things going so she was really super amazing and then they also like bought up lots of land to then gift to california to like help the state park system happen and like they were amazing and on the weekends she went rock climbing mountain climbing yes. mm-hmm. yeah and would take burrow trips and was always camping and like yeah she was like i'd love to hike and like i just remember her always being outside and like ansel adams being in the garden you know Hanging out, trimming flowers. I love this. At her memorial service in 1992, a group of women who scaled Annapurna in the Himalayas gathered to honor her as the climber who inspired them yeah. as early mountaineers. Yeah. Yep. She was, I mean, she was incredible. And she was great because my mom describes her as a fire plug. She was just like this like shorter squat woman. But she was a, she was a badass. She was awesome. She was a great grandma too. Because I, you know, of course I knew her as a grandma. So she was like always like canned everything and she ate the same lunch every day of spinach and tomato aspic and weird cottage cheese you know but like that's delicious actually as i've gotten older i have to say but she just like knew how to do everything she hosted these amazing wreath making parties at christmas where everybody would come and she tied all the bows and i don't know she was amazing well now it's making sense why you want to do so much because clearly that's the stock you come from i just kind of don't know another way yeah (laughs) that's fine What do you do if you ever have five spare minutes? Do you think that you must have forgotten to do something? That's how Monkey Madness happened. I taught myself to draw when I had children and I couldn't go to a darkroom anymore. I just was like, well, I'll pick up a pencil and learn to do this. So tell us what Monkey Business is. Okay, so so Monkey Madness Designs is really really just a... It's a website that honestly just exists for me to put the weird things that I draw up for anyone to buy if they want to, which, you know, you never know. Um, but I do little pop-ups at like Earth Day. So they're little drawings, usually of animals wearing things or um, happy plants. They're not, they're nothing is very like perfectly rendered, um, weirdly colored. They're just make people happy. I think there's sort of like a vintage nostalgic feel. I have some young collectors who are ages probably four to at this point, 10 or 11, who really love to add to their collection because everything is super affordable because I want to make sure that the youngest art collector a collector can also purchase what I'm making. So I have lots of kids who are like, could you make me a dinosaur, but could it be eating a shark? And I say, absolutely. <laughs> Let me work on that. And so, you know, and then the, sh- the shark will have a bow tie and the dinosaur has some sort of like tiara on it. You know, maybe there'll be a glitter chicken. You never know. <laughs> I think there should be a glitter yeah, chicken. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, and you also do a little greeting cards, right? Yep, and I do greeting cards, and those are at Yellow Dog. We carry them at the bookshop. And usually silly puns and just everything's hand-drawn. Like, I haven't even gotten to the point where I get things printed. I'm still just, like, watercoloring them all individually, and it's very underground is what I like to say. But really, it's just because I'm sitting on the couch like, well, I'm watching TV. I might as well do this as well. So, so they're all original pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And are you connected to One Canoe too, the printing so that's company? that's where I was working. Yeah, that's ah. where I was working for the sort of my, what I say, my step out from being in Columbia, which is just the most awesome women ever. Talented, so good at what they do. It was really, really wonderful working there. And I, I miss them every day. But I really enjoy being closer to home. So I'd like to have them on my show. You should. 
Oh my gosh, Beth! Give me great. their contact information totally. after the show. There, but yeah. So it does seem like you have bookshops in your blood. You met your husband Joe whilst working at Kepler's Nook and Magazines in the San Francisco Bay Area in 2001, and together you opened Yellow Dog Bookstore in 2013. And your sixth your sixth birthday is tomorrow. It's tomorrow. Yes. Congratulations! Thank Happy you. birthday! Thank you. Thank you. Um, so then. Uh, why books and not say an art supply store you're obviously an artist what sent you down the road into books well I think that the in the Bay Area in California I grew up in Palo Alto sort of this you know now most people know what it is but at the time nobody knew where it was so growing up I always went to Kepler's which is the big sort of the largest independent bookstore I probably still know the spiel but the largest independent (laughs) bookstore you still say we like I still say we for the I mean I'll always be a part of it yeah exactly (laughs) Um, and I really from there I really learned just as a customer how much you can make a difference to a, a shop you know this local community this idea of independent book selling I went to a hippie school where we would go to Kepler's on field trips you know and it was always taught to us as like this is the kind of place where you're going to shop because this is the kind of place that you want to keep in the community you know so I have really been sort of community focused for a long time but so anyway so when I got out of college I had done a grand tour of Europe basically sleeping on people's couches that I met during summer camp and you know wherever and um, when I came home I had no money moved back in with my mom who is quite wonderful and um decided I would just get a job at my local bookstore you know just like well I'll just do this for a little while and coming from hippies they were like that sounds great there was no pressure to sort of what's your career going to be it was like maybe I'll go into museums and you know work with archiving or education or do something with kids and art or I don't know and I really found my home with these weird bookseller people because that independent spirit not unlike at KOPN um is (laughs) felt like I sit in this office and I go yep I love it here you know like this feels because it's funky and it feels real and it's actual people who've painted the walls and it's not a company who came in and did it for you you know so that sort of can-do spirit of like we all come together we all make it happen so Joe was there too so that's how we that's how we met Mm. yeah and then and then into dating him And Yellow Dog Bookstore, I mean, it, it's not really competing with Skylark because you're no. doing secondhand yeah, right. uh, used books as opposed yeah, to new. Yeah, I would say it's 90% used and then we have 10% new, which is mostly like new and noteworthy, sort of what I think of Joe as like the books where he's like, I think the community needs to read these. or So they're not always new books, but there might be um, books that are social justice related or something where he's sort of really interested in whatever that topic is. He'll, he'll buy the book that he's like, this... I think, you know, like James Baldwin, we never have used copies of James Baldwin. Sometimes we do, but not often because people want to keep them. So he really wants people to read James Baldwin. So he'll keep some new copies. And and usually people, when they come in, are like, oh, yeah, that's great. It's a paperback. No big deal. And Skylark is awesome. And the more places we have downtown that have books like Peace Nook and everywhere, then the more people will come to shop at bookstores. Right. Then they'll come to every place. So it's not like I don't think of it as competition, more like cooperation. We're coming together, creating more things. Kind of the same with the art league in terms of how much art there is to access and you know, right? We're visit stronger together. Galleries, yeah, absolutely. I would wa- I would want someone to come in and then send them to another place after they see what we have, so they get the feeling about the whole entire community. Yeah, That's rather than saying, "Well, check on Amazon." Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, don't check on Amazon. <laughs> no friends that that was the kind of a sea change for me when i i was about to go to amazon and and order something and i thought no i'm just going to call a bookstore and have them order it right 
their way because then that money stays in their local economy. Yeah, yeah, and if we can, we won't order it from Amazon, you know, right? So, yeah. yeah. It might take a bit longer, but, you know, we're not in that much of a hurry. Right, right, exactly. It's just a book. It's just a book. It's okay. So one of the classes you teach is social media marketing for artists and also how to photograph your work, both of which I know are things that a lot of artists struggle with. I always felt like this was an area where Cal could have been doing more. Sure. So what kind of plans do you have to incorporate more business advice for artists into the Cal programming? Well, I think that um, one of the things that we really, we've changed up membership just a little bit, not not enough to hopefully scare anyone, but just a little bit to give people hopefully Yeah, it's been the same for 12 years now. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things is that you, with one of the membership levels um, as an artist, if you want, we can do like a yearly critique with you. So the staff can sit around, we can look at your work, we can give you some um, feedback. Now, critique sometimes is a scary word, um, especially if you haven't gone through art school or you haven't been in that kind of setting before. Um, but really what it means is encouraging uh, messaging to you. So it'll be, I like this and this could use a little work or this doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of the, st- the stuff that you're doing. Do you want to have a cohesive body of work or are you just making stuff that you're feeling right now? Because all of those things are good and valid. We just want to make sure that you feel like you're on the right path. And sometimes it's hard to make work in a vacuum when you don't have people giving you the kind of constructive criticism that you might need. So that's kind of one of those things that I hope we'll be adding and helping people with. That I think is just going to lead into people going, okay, now I feel like my work is in a place where I really want to maybe make a website. How do I do that? So, you know, the Columbia Art League has a way to show your work on our own website. And so that's a great stepping stone. And when you're ready to have your own as well, we can try to hopefully make that happen for you. So I'm currently teaching a class coming up in the fall at Resident Arts, and I think we'll probably end up you know, working some of that into our own programming as we go, uh, not just for members probably, but for anybody who wants to take the class. So, um, so learning how you know, build-it-yourself websites work, from that kind of thing to sending out what, like a newsletter, the useful information you can put into that, but also looking at like, what does your Instagram look like? Is it a hot mess? I mean, does it have pictures does of everything exist? and everything, you know, or is it, yeah, does it exist? But is it also really featuring your art as best as it can? So hopefully that stuff is are places that we can start working with artists one-on-one. How do you feel about art in the park? I feel like art in the park is big and bold <laughs> and hot. Sometimes, not always so hot. This year was so was beautiful. Perfect. It was so it was perfect. perfect yeah. Um, I mean, I love it. It's a great resource for the community. And it really, I think, captures the entire community filling out the grant report is really hard because it's like well no everybody comes to it it really feels like so you have people i've never even seen in columbia before and then i'm also high-fiving people i've seen you know every other day or whatever so i think that that's kind of a a really good catch-all and a really good way to not only have artists from here but also from far away come and show their work and then have the community support art locally but also nationally you know so there's a good a really good mix of people that go and that kind of thing. So everyone should come to Art in the Park. It's going to be next June, first weekend. <laughs> Whatever happens, it's going to be next June. Yeah. You didn't kind of like shrink into your skin when I said, how do you feel about Art in the Park? I mean, I sure I did. Yeah. But <laughs> but maybe not visibly. <laughs> I mean, Maybe I, this time next year you'll be like, don't no, ask I will, about yeah, I'll park. come back on, I'm sure, and be like, okay, how did you do it? Um, I mean, th- what's cool is this year in particular, there were so many people who were helping. And the, the board is super involved. The volunteers are incredible. I mean, and I got to volunteer a little bit, which was so fun in the Young Collector 
collector's tent where children get to come in and pick out an artwork to start their collection. I mean, I just was like, I wasn't weeping really, but it was, I was definitely like, oh, you're very adorable. And it's like, you know, 10 year olds like, lady, I got this. I've done this before. Why are your eyes all moist? Yeah, exactly. What's wrong with you? Um, Just really good opportunity for all levels of people to enjoy art. So I will be overwhelmed, but excited. Okay, good, good, yeah. good. You can you can call me anytime. I'm sure I will. Ask about <laughs> I'm sure, we'll be drinking. Now, before sure. we close, just tell me what's coming up at Cal's. I know there's a new exhibit called "The Child Within," opening in early September. What Correct. is that exactly? So that is a collaboration between um, artists from the Locust Elementary School, so children artists, and then uh, adult artists can choose one of their artworks to respond to or integrate into their artwork in some way so i'm really thinking of it as a collaboration between these two different artists at different ages so that show will open early the first week of september and the reception is on september 6th and all of the children's artworks are on the art league website so you can go in and you can select the artwork that you want can multiple artists choose the same artwork no so it so once you select that artwork that one sort of in quotes belongs to you and then you respond to that one alone so if you are interested now is the time to go because people have been selecting their artworks and it's pretty exciting to see what people are choosing so go on there and if you want to participate see if there's a something you respond to and make sure to sign up for it okay yeah i had to look through the artworks they're very Mm -hmm. adorable yeah they're super adorable okay and that's coming up so i think submissions for that at the end of august Mm -hmm. and then the opening reception is september September 6th Mm -hmm. okay gosh i have so much i know we'll have to just continue another time i mean i can definitely come back more than (laughs) quarterly don't worry okay great and thank you so much to kelsey hammond kelsey is the new executive director of the columbia art league to find out about art shows and classes that are coming up at cal go to columbia art league Org, or drop by their 9th Street Gallery next to the Missouri Theatre. Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you so much. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be chatting to Joan Stack, the curator of art collections at the State Historical Society of Missouri. Back in a mo. Well, welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. I had hoped that we were going to have Joan Stack here for the second half of the show. She may turn up. I know she's incredibly busy. Here she is. Okay, she is here. All right, I was going to have Kelsey come back in because I have another half hour of questions for Kelsey, but uh, we'll do that another day, Kelsey. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Okay, here we go. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Hello, Joan. If, like me, you spend time in downtown Columbia and have been aghast at all the boxy high-rise apartments that have blighted the landscape, you will likely have noticed the rising of a very different style of building on Elm Street. Since breaking ground in April 2017, the new Centre for Missouri Studies has been intriguingly curvaceous from the get-go. Designed by Kansas City architecture firm Gold Evans, the design was inspired by the significance of the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi rivers and how that affected the development of the state. And with its curves now clad in Missouri limestone, the $35 million, 76,000 square foot facility is set to have its grand opening on Saturday, August the 10th, the date on which in 1821, Missouri celebrated its first official day of statehood. And here to tell us a little bit more about the building and the art collections it will house is Dr. Joan Stack, curator for art collections for the State Historical Society of Missouri. 
Welcome back to the show, Joan. Oh, well, it's good to be here. <laughs> I know you are incredibly busy, so thank you for having half an hour to spare to come oh, on yes, and tell us I about the building. I walked over and then I guess I mis- misjudged the time a little bit. I should have left three minutes earlier. It was a nice day. <laughs> it's hard not to linger. So the grand opening isn't until next Saturday, but I'm guessing you've been moved in for a while. How does it feel to be in this vast Base after being in like the tiny or the cramped basement of Ellis Library for the last hundred years. Well, it really does. Um, as far as the art collection is concerned, it really does the artwork justice. I mean, we have these giant paintings by Thomas Hart Benton in particular, but also a very large painting by George Caleb Bingham. The uh, space at Ellis really made those paintings seem confined. Uh, the ceilings were low. And now we have a big, expansive black ceiling above these beautiful white walls. And we can really step back and look at these paintings, see them for what they are as as cultural masterpieces from this region, not just for this region, but for the entire United States and the world. These images help us to better understand aspects of our history, the cultural aesthetic history, as well as the political and social history. It's hard to fathom exactly how huge the State Historical Society's collection is. The manuscript collection contains 143,000 books and periodicals, almost 58,000 reels of microfilm holding about 54 million pages of newspapers, more than 8,000 maps, over 147,000 photographs, and that's in addition to the 342 paintings, drawings and prints by Thomas Hart Benton, 83 works by George Caleb Bingham, and thousands of other pieces of art including 69 sculptures and ceramics and almost 16,500 editorial and other cartoons. So surely even 76,000 square feet of space is not enough. Yeah, I mean, I think we go from being able to show less than one half of 1% of the collection to a little bit more than one half (laughs) of 1% of the collection. But we are showing all the Thomas Hart Bentons and that have a national reputation, these World War II paintings. There's 10 of them. We were never really able to show all 10 at once unless we had a special exhibition. So uh, that's important. And these are works that really do have a national reputation that that recently toured the country in a big um, uh, multi-museum exhibition that did stop in at the Nelson Atkins, but also went, went to the Milwaukee Museum of Art and was in Massachusetts, and it's been all over the country. So these are works that people come from all over to see. And I, you, you hate for people to be disappointed, to walk in and not see that painting that they've seen in a book or they've seen illustrated elsewhere. So, so works like Order Number 11, works like Watching the Cargo by George Caleb Bingham, a painting that recently was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York for a big exhibition. So these are works that people have seen. They're sometimes surprised. Hey, I've seen that picture before on the cover of a book. And here it is, the original, uh, right here in Columbia, Missouri. So I think what I feel good about is we're doing those artists and those artworks justice. We're providing the people of Missouri access to their own collection. I mean, this does not belong to me. This belongs to all of us. And I see it, too, as, um, as a collection that we are caring for and conserving for 
the future. I think it's for my children and for their children and for anybody who is uh, interested in that aspect of, of our history. So it's an important collection and we're finally doing it justice. But one of the things I liked about your introduction is you really talked about the uh, design of the building and how it uh, affects the way we experience the collections and I really want to emphasize that because we are going to be having our our grand opening on August 10th and we will have an outdoor uh, component at 10 o'clock in the morning in Peace Park and then people will be invited in at around 11 o'clock to explore the building and what I was really surprised about when I first got in was the beautiful way in which the interior and the exterior sort of work together as you mentioned the the material in the building is Missouri material the color of those limestone bluffs you see in the exterior of the building inside we have a grand staircase that the form sort of suggests a river that idea of confluence it also might remind you of the undulating forms of Thomas Hart Benton but it's a really um, monumental staircase with uh, white oak from Missouri as the material that's used so we we are bringing those uh, natural elements in but you also have these wonderful windows uh, from the second floor a beautiful view of Peace Park from uh, just a little bit above uh, street level and you really get this it, it makes you feel positive about this place I, I mean I one of the things I love about Missouri is the lushness of our landscape and you can you actually experience that by looking out over Peace Park and of course Peace Park doesn't look as lush as these wooded areas around here where you cannot stop things from growing vines and weeds but it's very beautiful in a way it's a it's something that I hope we never lose I mean it's it's something that people who are from Missouri uh, I think are really love about about Missouri. So the natural world is very much a part of the way the building has been designed and arcs and this idea of, of bringing the interior out and the ex- exterior in is is a big part of the design of the building. The words I, I see listed with the building often are confluence and convergence, mm-hmm. that it is this confluence of the rivers, it has that, that flows through the structure, but the idea of convergence, that it's, it's bringing together both the campus and the city in a That's way that right. no other building has done before it. It kind of flows, that yeah. link flows through the building. Yeah, and there are two, two um, facades, if you will. There's a city facade and a campus facade and you might say that the campus facade looks out onto the natural world and the city facade looks out, out into the cultural world the the man-made buildings etc and I think that's wonderful and I I think the idea of confluence is also an important idea historically because the fact that Missouri was a confluence for the nation a, a place where two rivers met a, a crossroads for the nation this is where the Santa Fe Trail and all these um, all these other trails uh, started. And so we were also a, a crossroads where a lot of people from different places came. And so you get all of these interesting political and social things happening in Missouri, some good and some bad. And I think that's reflected also in the idea of confluence. And finally, the idea that we're a confluence of different types of way of, of exploring history through the newspapers, through the manuscripts, through the art. All of those are kind of different approaches to understanding our history and our past.
podcast. Uh, in keeping with the river theme of the building, the ceiling of the research centre on the second floor has an interesting feature. What do people see if they look up? Well, I understand that a lot of people see a boat-like uh, shape. I also kind of think of it as, as, again, a kind of an organic shape, an undulating shape that might suggest the river itself as well. So everybody will come to it with a different uh, point of view, but it definitely has this kind of natural quality but also you know of course boats were a very important part of our history so if you see the underside of a boat as though you're down in the river looking up <laughs> uh, that's an interesting uh, quality too how was the building funded where did the 35 million come from which seems to be honest not a lot of money for yeah. an amazing building yeah well it was through bond issues uh, issued by the state uh, the state historical society of missouri was founded in 1898 so it has been going for a long time and it was founded to preserve Missouri's history and one of the particular things we started doing early on was uh, preserving those newspapers because there is so much in the newspapers that gets lost in history and the fact that you can go back and you can find that information I mean this is something that the private sector is just not going to do so the state was involved in that and in the end the state was the one who decided that this was worth doing. I mean, it's been a long time coming. I mean, in 1898, I believe we were in a campus building, but the library was not built yet. But we went into the library very early on, and uh, we've been there for a long time, for decades, and um, and we grew out of it a long time ago. Are we unusual in having, as a state, in having such clear records of our newspapers or do most states do that? Well, I think different types of institutions collect those things in, in different states. So you were lucky if you had an institution that was collecting them. Uh, most states seem to have done a decent job of collecting them through private and public um, institutions. But what is a little unusual about Missouri is it's one of the few historical societies, our historical societies, that has collected art on this kind of scale and really collected high quality art. I mean, one that comes to mind that perhaps is equivalent, perhaps even a little better than ours is the New York Historical Society. But there aren't very many others that have an art collection of the, um, of the national quality that ours has. And so being able to show that off and seeing it as a real asset to the community, I mean, here is a place where tourists might be attracted to seeing Benton and Bingham. They know those names. And um, it's going to be, a, I, I hope, a, a place for people to gather, not only on the first floor where you'll be able to go in the art collection, but we also have a bookstore on the first floor. And there is also an auditorium. And that hopefully will become a real center for all kinds of activity. Certainly, we expect to have lots of uh, historical speakers come and speak there, but we may have films, all kinds of other things will happen in that space so it's a real public space on the first floor and then on the second floor you go up that grand staircase and that's where you can do that research into Missouri's history to the newspaper history to genealogy all of those um, more personal 
aspects to discovering Missouri's history. Have you, the art collection, has, have you bought things? Are you allowed to acquire things by paying for them? Or is everything gifted to you over the, the years? We do, we have bought things and including some of the really old things. Order number 11, I believe it came from the Rollins family, which was a Columbia family, but we did, um, we did give them some money for it. But a lot of things were gifted. The, the Benton paintings were all gifted to us. Uh, so we have a combination of both. Uh, we don't have a large acquisitions fund, but we are still acquiring things. One of the things people will see is a wonderful new sculpture that uh, our various uh, board members and other members who were fans of Thomas Hart Benton helped us to acquire. It's a sculpture of Thomas Hart Benton by Charles Banks Wilson, who was an Oklahoma artist, who was a friend of Benton's. He did a large version of this sculpture of Benton walking purposefully out to do some sketches from nature. He did a larger version of this that appear that is, is standing in front of the Kansas City Art Institute, where Benton taught. But there were several smaller versions that he did to help raise money for the larger sculpture, and we managed to get one of those. So uh, we're going to have that uh, there near the Benton painting. So a, a way to honor Benton in a way, but also to see a, a good work of sculpture by a, an important American artist. Will those Second World War, the year of peril paintings, will they be on permanent display? Yes. I mean, we the only reason we would take them down would be if the, a there was a large exhibition that borrowed one of those paintings, which has happened recently a couple of times. But um, but otherwise, they will be on permanent display. The same with uh, those uh, internationally famous Binghams, Order Number Eleven, Watching the Cargo, will almost always be there, unless for some reason they're out on loan. So, in your new home, you'll have a five and a half thousand square foot gallery, which to show the artworks from the collection, but. I'm guessing you're going to have to still make some hard choices. So how are you going to work the gallery space? What are the plans for it? The way it's worked out is on the left side as you walk in, there are the there is the permanent collection. So the large paintings, and that will change a little bit from time to time, although the big, the works that people come from around the country to see will always be on display. And then on the right side will be temporary exhibitions. There will be a large temporary exhibition gallery, and we are not opening that with the new building. That's going to open on September 19th, and we're going to have a two-part exhibition of all the additioned lithographs of Thomas Hart Benton. So there's over 80 of these, and we have them all. So we're quite proud of that as part of our collection. So we are going to show about 40 during the first installment and another 40 uh, or so in the second installment. So that we thought we'd open with the semester so the university uh, students could come and see it and leave something a little bit for people to look forward to uh, in the fall. So, uh, But behind the first of our exhibition galleries, we have three smaller galleries. Uh, They are all three named for the Guitar Family, an important uh, Columbia family, the Guitar Family Galleries, and each one has a has a loose theme. The first one is Natural and Cultural History, and the first exhibition there, which will open on uh, August 10th, is an exhibition of Oliver Shukard's Photography. And if you know Oliver Shukard, he was a professor for many years at the, at the um, university. He actually worked with Ansel Adams. These are very traditional black and white photos, not digital. These were done in the dark room. And uh, and you will see that Ansel Adams, Edward Weston sort of traditional uh, aesthetic, and they're very beautiful. So we, we're going to be showing Oliver Shukard in the natural and cultural history. Those are landscape photos. Then we will have um, 
an editorial cartoon and illustration gallery, and you mentioned a large portion of our, co our collection, over half of the art collection really, is editorial cartoons and illustrations. So we are um, going to commemorate the 80th anniversary of the beginning of World War II with a year-long exhibition of cartoons by Daniel Fitzpatrick, the two-time Pulitzer Prize winner cartoonist from St. Louis, his cartoons following that history of the, of the war. And the first installment is completely images from before the United States entered the war. So we have an image that deals with the invasion of Poland, which happened on September 1st. Uh, 1939, so that's the anniversary will actually uh, occur when the exhibition is on display. And then images reflecting the invasion of Russia, the fall of France, uh, obviously the issues in Britain uh, where people were afraid Britain was going to fall, all of those things that happened before December 7th, 1941. And then our second installment will actually open on December 7th, and that will begin the United States involvement in the war. And finally, in our third small gallery, it will be Bingham and Benton works on paper. And we are going to, again, do a year-long exhibition so we can show off all the different works that we have uh, from a collection of Thomas Hart Benton illustrations from Mark Twain books. So we are going to show these illustrations from Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, and Life on the Mississippi. And we'll be showing about 20 in each installment. We have over 200 of these, so <laughs> you won't even get to see them all. But uh, we're really showing off some of the best of these. And these are beautiful watercolors and wash drawings, some pen and ink drawings. And um, you really see how, in some ways, Mark Twain and, and Thomas Hart Benton have a similar interest in creating the illusion of ease and the vernacular, but they're really very complexly crafted. And Benton really captures that. So these look like, looks like Benton just tossed these off. These are these beautiful kind of images with a lot of spontaneity to them, but they're very beautifully uh, crafted, very complex, really, if you look at them. So, um, so I hope people will enjoy seeing those those drawings by Thomas Hart Benton. And I'd like for people to always know that there will be works like that on display that they can see a little bit more than just what they might expect. The big paintings by Bingham and Benton. There'll always be uh, something else uh, to see that other aspect of their of their work. The work that maybe was in the public sphere a bit more. Illustrations, lithographs. Uh, prints that they did, drawings. So hopefully that will be a new aspect to our collection. So people can go in, they always know they'll see editorial cartoons, they'll see uh, something by Bingham and Benton that is not the oil paintings, and they'll see something dealing with our natural and cultural history. So that's, that's new. We're going to have, um, hopefully better able to represent the breadth of our collection through these uh, smaller galleries, which means we'll always have something new when you come in. They'll always be, we'll always be changing the exhibitions a little bit. Well, I mean, Benton and Bingham are probably the two best-known Missouri yeah. artists, and they get the most attention, but I mean, there's a lot of other artists in your collection, not only historical artists, but also contemporary artists like That's right. Jane Mudd and Frank yeah. Stack and Byron <laughs> Smith. So when when did they get shown? Like, how do you fit those those works into the uh, gallery space? Well, one of the things, I'm glad you mentioned Byron Smith, because we actually commissioned him to do a painting of the new building and that should be on display probably on an easel at this point because we're we still haven't found the per 
perfect frame for it. But uh, that should be on display at the grand opening. So you'll get to see that. And uh, I'm thinking of the contemporary artists we have on display right now. We have a, a work by William Quinn, who is an artist who used to be a professor at WashU, a very well-respected artist. The painting that we have is from the 70s, and it's sort of a pop art, has a little bit of abstract expressionism in, the, in it, but the it's called Budweiser, Budweiser. And so the pop art aspect is he's taken the, the Budweiser A with the, uh, with the eagle and sort of uh, made it a more abstract image. So uh, you'll get to see uh, that when you come to the gallery. We have a work by Jim Frey who um, he's a contemporary artist he recently passed away his variation on order number 11 which is quite interesting we will also have a work by not a contemporary artist but I think it's important because it's an important woman artist who has some connection with Columbia Rose O'Neill who uh, was a very successful entrepreneur in the 19 teens and 20s she invented the Cupid. And, of course, uh, Hickman High School uh, got its mascot from her Cupies. And uh, she did a Cupie uh, cartoon illustration that appeared in the Ladies' Home Journal, I think, uh, for many years, uh, little cartoons uh, about the Cupies and their exploits. And, and she was actually quite, a, quite a, an interesting woman. She was a suffragette. She was very interested in kind of contemporary issues. She went to Paris and studied with Rodin. So she was a... Uh, an interesting uh, modern woman for her time. But anyway, we are going to have one of the drawings of the Cupies, which is a new acquisition of ours on display. So we, we're trying to bring out a few kind of interesting things for um, for the opening. We'll also have uh, George Caleb Bingham's portrait of Odin guitar to tie into the guitar galleries and, and some other things that kind of relate to, um, to Columbia and our history here. Of the 12,000 artworks that you have, what percentage are... And they may not be living, but they, you know, contemporary, maybe late 20th century. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, it's a fairly large percentage of the paintings. I mean, you mentioned we don't have a huge, no, it's in the hundreds rather than the thousand. But um, I would say maybe about 30 to 40 percent of the paintings are by artists, uh, 20th century artists, uh, some living, some of them not. But and, and certainly the sculpture as well, I'm thinking, and the ceramics. Uh, the, but we have this huge collection of these editorial cartoons. Some of those artists are still living. In fact, we're still collecting Darko. He is, <laughs> I was going to uh, say, ask about Darko. Yeah, yes. yeah. And we have, another, we have some other things by uh, uh, Lee Judge, who's over at the, um, at the Kansas City Star. So we are still collecting contemporary uh, cartoonists, but the majority of our cartoon collection is from probably the 1920s to the 1960s. And some of those artists are elderly and still living, but many of them have passed on. We also have this large collection of wonderful things like um, newspaper illustrations, wood engravings from the from the 19th century and, and, and stuff like that. So we have a, a lot of the works on paper are, are really more historical items, but a lot of things that are more popular culture than what would traditionally be called fine art. But we're rethinking all of those boundaries uh, these days. And so there's so much that can be learned from those popular culture images. So, you know, what were people looking at in the newspapers in, um, in 1860, you know, and, and how did that uh, shape the way they viewed the world? So we like to bring these things out and explore, you know, historical events. We're going to do something for the anniversary of women's suffrage that's coming up in 2020. So
so um, we're actually going to do a collaboration with the Missouri Historic Costume and Textile Collection. So we'll have clothing uh, from that period, artwork from that period, but we're going to take it up to the modern day because we're not just going to do um, women's suffrage, but we're also going to do women in politics and how from the age of suffrage to today, women have really made some great gains. So that'll be an interesting thing to explore, some of those editorial cartoons and all of the ways in which um, women have been represented. And it, there's huge changes, even in our lifetimes. <laughs> so, um, so to look at that and how the visual world reflects and influences the way we are thinking at a certain period of time. Again, popular culture, editorial cartoons, advertisements, all those things are sometimes dismissed, but they are sometimes some of the things that best help us best to understand those periods. Now, the 12,000 artworks, are, are they all digitized? So even things that aren't on display, a lot of it, you can still go and look through Well, the... with the Bingham and the Bittens, yes. Uh, with some of the editorial cartoons, we happen to have um, all the Daniel Fitzpatrick's digitized and all the Thomas Engelhardt's digitized, but there are a lot that are not. I mean, that's a, a goal. We're in this aspirational building. Hopefully we can um, slowly but surely start to get uh, more of that material digitized. But um, but there is quite a lot, and you could definitely do an explore topic, say, uh, women's, women's history and politics, and find some stuff online. But... Um, but I'd like to see more digitized. It's not anywhere nearly the, the breadth of our collection that's online yet. With, with all this new space, is the entire collection now going to be in one building, or will you still need to have satellite buildings for storage? I, I think most, I, don't, I can't think of anything that will not be in the building except for things like uh, crates uh, for some of the artworks. I can't say that that 100% be true. In the future, for instance, if we got a large sculpture that would not be damaged if we put it in outside storage. But at the moment, yes, I think everything is going to, all the artwork is going to be here. So the grand opening next Saturday, is that open to everybody or is it by invitation only? Uh, yes, it is open to everybody. As I said, you can just come to Peace Park and there will be some dignitaries uh, speaking. You can explore the building. I believe on the Facebook page, we are at, we did ask people to RSVP just so that we could get a rough idea because there are are going to be some past hors d'oeuvres in the in the grand near the grand staircase and all of that but yeah everybody's invited we encourage you to come and, and visit us and to have a look at this new uh, space of course if you can't make it on on saturday the 10th please come by and visit us uh, in august and september we'll have lots of fun stuff to see and do I noticed there's going to be a gift shop. Will we be able to exit through it? Oh, no. No, <laughs> you don't exit through the gift shop. Yeah, the gift shop, both of them look out onto the kind of grand foyer, the art gallery, and then the gift shop is on the other side of the foyer. <laughs> My guest today has been Joan Stack, the curator of art collections for the State Historical Society of Missouri, and just one of the people who gets to work in the fabulous new Center for Missouri Studies facility, which has its grand opening next Saturday, August the 10th, 198 years to the day after Missouri became a state. Thank you so much, Joan. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> you're listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way onto your calendars. After a busy few weeks of theatre and music, the upcoming week is a bit of a lull so we can all catch our breath. That said, tonight is first Friday in the North Village Arts District from six till nine. So there is a host of things to do. At All Street Studios, there is a new show called The Art of Assemblage featuring works by six local artists 
artists. At Resident Arts, they are billing their first Friday as a mashup event with colouring, a photo booth and the launch of moody garbage stickers. Not sure what that is. Sega Browdis opens its August show this evening with new works from five artists. At the new Artworks Studios, you can get a henna tattoo, while across the road at Artlandish, there is live music out front as well as on the patio. And at Talking Horse Theatre, you can catch the short-form improv troupe The Ponies, performing a three-hour set from six till nine, at which audiences are encouraged to come and go throughout the evening and pay on a pay-what-you-can basis. After First Friday, head to Rose Music Hall with a $5 bill for their undercover jukebox night, this month featuring the Bernie sisters covering their favourite jukebox hits live on stage. Meanwhile, at the Columbia Entertainment Company, it is opening weekend for their production of the Shakespearean comedy A Midsummer Night's Dream. The show has a two-weekend run and tickets are $12. And if you want to head out of town, then the Maples Rep Theatre in Macon has five performances of Buddy, the Buddy Holly story this weekend, with three matinee performances at 2pm today, tomorrow and Sunday, as well as two 7.30 evening shows tonight and Sunday night. Tomorrow, Yellow Dog Bookshop on 9th Street has its sixth birthday party from 10am onwards. In Fayette, the Fayette Festival of the Arts runs from 9 till 4 tomorrow at the Courthouse Square. Greenhouse Theatre Project has a fun pop-up event of theatre, food and wine out at Bluebell Farm in Fayette from 6 to 8. There's no need to pay in advance as you can make the suggested donation of $10 to $15 on the door but do drop Greenhouse an email to let them know that you're coming. At Skylark Bookshop, Columbia native Caleb the Negro Rainey will be talking about his book of poetry, Look! Black Boy, from 7 till 8pm tomorrow. At Rose Park, you can hear a free concert by Don't Mind Dying and the Common Shearers starting at 7. And the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock starts a new show tomorrow night. Murder for Two, a blend of music, mayhem and murder with all 13 roles and the piano played by just two performers. There are matinee performances tomorrow and Sunday plus an evening performance tomorrow night at 8pm and tickets are $42. Sunday evening, the We Always Swing Jazz Series has its 25th season kickoff at the roof atop the Broadway Hotel at 6pm. Tickets are $25 for that. Tuesday evening, author Laura McHugh will be at Skylock Bookshop shot from 6 to 8 for the launch of her latest thriller, The Wolf Wants Him. At Rose Park next Tuesday, their free movies in the park is The Big Lebowski and that starts at 8.30. On Wednesday next week, Resident Arts launches their new colouring book called We Are All Crew, an art and science open educational resource. Their event will be at the Walnut Street Studios at 5.30 and that's free to attend. And at Rose Music Hall, their regular Ramblers Club singer-songwriter night is back with mid-Missouri songwriters trading sets on the patio from 8pm next Wednesday. And that event's also free. Next Thursday is the first of the Maple Rep Theatre's semi-annual cabaret nights where each member of the company gets to perform their favourite show tune. Tickets cost $25 and their cabaret starts at 7.30. And finally, at Capital City Productions in Jefferson City, they open their production of the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical Cinderella next Thursday. Doors open at 6pm for the dinner theatre show and tickets are $38, including the dinner. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.